So we started a series two weeks ago called The Way You See Me. The Way You See Me. We started off by asking the question, how do you see me? Now we, we asked that question because we, we identified that that's a question that a lot of people just have running through their head and there's internal dialogue as they go through their day. Now, some of us are very aware that we ask that question on a regular basis, and some of us are kind of oblivious to it, and some of us fall somewhere in between. But, but the truth of the matter is, many of us at different stages of life have had that question run through our head in different circumstances, different social settings, and has impacted the way we live. And so the, the formula, the formula that we, we talked about in that first week was we act, they see, and they treat. We take action. They, those people out there, see us take action, and then in response, they treat us a certain way based on how they view us. And so we, we started walking through this path, thinking through what it means to shape our actions to shape how people treat us. And the, the fear of man is this idea, this concept that, that we allow the view of other people to shape how we act. If we concern ourselves more with how we're treated by others than what is right, then, then we will start taking action that makes others treat us better. And so the challenge we gave our, ourselves was to do what is right, regardless, of it's, regardless of if it's accepted, or regardless of if it brings us any gain. We do what's right at all costs. Now, the next week, Brett came up and talked about really this overarching concept of the fear of God. The fear of man says, I fear man, and man controls my actions. The fear of God says, I fear God, and God controls my actions. He walks through the story of Job, and so this morning in student small groups, they're looking deeply at the story of Job and how even in the darkest of times, the fear of God, this perspective that God is above all, can ground us and can root us in actual truth. Now this week, we're we're asking the question, how do you see me once again for this final time? But we're not asking it of ourselves. We're asking it of others from their perspective. Because if, if the question goes on in our head, how do you see me? Then the question goes on in the heads of other people around us, how do you see me? And so people look at us and ask the question of us, how do you see me? And so as we, as we wrap up, we're going to focus deeply on what it actually means to live a life that's an accurate reflection of what God calls us to and how people see us and how we see them. So, if you have a Bible, we'll, we'll spend some time in two different passages today. Matthew 22 and then 1 Corinthians 13. And so if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 22, we'll start there. So in, in Matthew 22, an expert in the law questions Jesus about the most important law. Now, this was actually meant to trap Jesus, to trick him, to put him in a situation where he would lose credibility. But instead of falling for that, Jesus actually took this as an opportunity to teach. You see, this, this law that was being asked about is simply the documentation of how people are supposed to relate to God and how people are supposed to relate to the world around them. And so when you read the Old Testament law, it can be very confusing because there's all these different laws, edicts, and things like that that the people of Israel are called to follow. But if you look at it through the perspective of how we relate to God and how we relate to the world, how we relate to people, it actually becomes very, very simple. And so Jesus gives this response to the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In Matthew 22, 36 through 40. The question gets asked, teacher, which command of the law is the greatest? 
And so he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, anytime Jesus says something is the greatest, we have to pay attention. That's, that's, not, that's not a word that gets thrown out that means it's insignificant. Like, this is, this is big. And there's so much more in this passage that we could talk about. I mean, the, the reality is people have written books on just this passage right here. And so for us to sit here and say, okay, in this 20-minute time, we're going to cover everything, that would be, that would be false. We're, we're not going to. But what we're going to do is, like, with every great passage that there is, we're going to address it, we're going to go to it, and we're going to take away what we can right now, knowing that there's a reservoir of great information, great challenges that if we were to go back to, we could keep taking from and keep taking from and keep taking from. In fact, when you encounter passages like this, the idea that there's a verse of the day that we don't ever come back to really kind of challenges what's actually right with Scripture. So when there's passages like this, you visit them and you revisit them. And you go back and back and back and back and back. And each time you do, the Lord will continue giving, thing, giving you things to take away. And so today, we're going to take away just a partial part of what the Lord may have for us in this passage for the future. So loving God with your entire self is this foundational starting point to obeying God. And so that all the law of the prophets hinges on the command to love the Lord your God, but not just love in this ethereal sense, ambiguous, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This comprehensive love of God is the very first foundational piece of obedience to God. But then Jesus goes on and says the second commandment is, is, is like it. It's like that first command. And so it's equal in value to the sense that it has to accompany the first one. It cannot live in isolation. He says, loving your neighbor, loving people, is this non-negotiable partnership with loving God. There is no love for God divorced from the love of people. And there's no true love of people that's divorced from the actual true love of God. Now, at First Baptist Georgetown, we, we believe in these two commands so much that if you were to hear our vision statement, you would hear it over and over and over and over again. Love God, love people, and help others do the same. Love God, love people, and help others do the same. What are we going to say? Love God, love people, and help others do the same. This is foundational, not just in this passage, but it's foundational to us as a body of believers. And so if we ever find ourselves removed from loving God, loving people, and helping others do the same, we believe, we believe that we are off course. We believe that we have strayed from the central mission of the local church, which is to love God, love people, and help others do the same. And so how do we love God? How do we love God? And I would say in, in light of the way you see me, the answer is how do we see God? We see God through the lens of love. Like a right view of God necessitates that we see God through the lens of love. Now, last week we, we talked about the fear of God and what it means to love God, to fear God, and what it means for God to love us and value us. But this week we're thinking through what does it mean for other people to ask of us, how do you see me? And so the answer to the question, how do you see me, is wrapped up in the second command. We love people. We love people. And so when the person out there says, how do you see me? The believer answers, I see you through the lens of love. 
Uh, this idea of love can be very, very ambiguous. Oh, yeah, I love that person or I love that thing or whatever. And, and we really struggle sometimes to nail down what it actually means to love. Even, even though we hear a passage over and over again about what it means to love, for some reason, we, we don't always put the two together. If you go to a wedding, one of the most common passages you will hear at a wedding is 1 Corinthians 13. And so we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 13, but before we do, I just want to give you a little bit of context. This is not, this is not some ambiguous or just kind of out there list that's supposed to be confusing. This is the practical, pragmatic living out of love. And so when, when Paul lists out these things in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not trying to be confusing. In fact, he's trying to be very, very, very clear about what it means to, to love. So in this first section of, of 1 Corinthians 13, we, we do see that love is what ultimately matters. In fact, you're going to have an opportunity in small groups this morning to kind of talk through some of these types of things. And so before we read this first listing, I, I just want to give you some context, you're going to hear in this a lot of Christian activities. And so in, in the church in Corinth, there were some things that they valued as being very holy and spiritual things. Those show up in this list. And so what I want us to do is kind of put our shoes, I mean, put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians, of the church there, and kind of ask the question before we even read this list, what are the things that we look at at church people and say, oh, that's really what makes you holy. Like, I would say that within this church, there are certain Bible studies, if you attend, that it's like, oh, okay, that person's really taking their faith seriously. If there's certain trips you go on, okay, that person really takes their faith seriously. If there's certain positions that you hold in this local church, oh, okay, that person must really take their faith seriously. Or even certain Bibles that you carry, oh, that person may really take their faith seriously. And so we get this listing in 1 Corinthians of things that the people in the church would have looked at and said, oh, that really does set somebody apart as being a great Christ follower. But listen to what Paul says about it. He says, If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and I give my body over in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can do churchy things. We, we can do things that mark, like those super Christians that love Jesus. We can do those things. But if we don't have love, it doesn't matter. I think there's a couple of different reasons why it doesn't matter if love is absent. I think one is, is God, more than anyone, looks at the heart. And so a lot of times the presenting actions that we take don't really matter ultimately because God is more concerned with our heart than he is with the, out, the, the, the outward evidence because God knows truly that man can deceive others. And so God looks at the heart. And so all throughout the New Testament, you see actually when people are admonished because their heart doesn't line up with their actions. You, you see people who actually were, were killed because their heart didn't line up with their actions. And so I think one of the reasons love is so critical to doing Christian things is the fact that God looks at the heart. And if love is absent, it's meaningless because God looks at the heart and says, that's not, that's not the heart that I want for you. And so if we find ourselves in situations where we're patting ourselves on the back for doing churchy things, but there's an absence of love, we just have to sit there and say, we're the only ones proud of that. God's not proud of that. 
God wants your heart to be a heart of love. And the second reason I think he's so adamant about it here in 1 Corinthians is that, that, that Paul knows that the absence of love typically means the absence of the Spirit. If, if the Spirit is not present in our Christian working, then there's not power behind it. And the fact of the matter is the kingdom of God is not something that we are able to build with our own hands. On our own strength, our own ability, our own willpower is not enough to establish the kingdom of God and to see its expanse in this world. And so anytime we work for the kingdom but separated from love, we're not working hand in hand with the Spirit. I think God knows that. And so when Paul writes down that if you do all these things but don't have love, it's worth nothing, I think he knows. God doesn't approve it, and God's not in it if there is no love. But he goes on. And we see that, that love is what impacts our relationships to their actual core. He says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. It does not keep record of wrongs, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I don't normally Greek out in this room. I don't. But I think it's important at this moment to think through the way this was actually written. These are not adjectives ascribed to love in the original text. These are verbs associated with love. And so a more literal reading, which we would not use in English because we don't have these words, but a more literal reading would be love, patience. Love, kinds. Love, envies, not. You see, Paul understood that love, and it's not a cliche. I'm going to say it, and I don't want it to sound like a cliche. It's not a cliche. But Paul understood that love is an action. Love takes action. It is the impetus for action. Love is demonstrated by actions, patience. But, but not, not this passive, oh, I'll be patient. No, no, no. I will patient. I will intentionally patient. I will set my mind to patienting. I will set my heart to patienting. I will patient. Like I said, it's not a word. We don't use that word that way. And so it gets translated a different way. But love actively takes action. Now here's, here's the other part that I want us to see is that love takes the appropriate action at the appropriate time. You see, this, this listing of love is patient doesn't mean that love always demonstrates patient. patience. No, love is patient when the situation calls on patience. If, if it's appropriate and the most loving thing for me to do is to extend out the time in which I wait to respond, that's what love does. If, if, if love, if the most appropriate thing, the most loving action is to extend my fuse before I react in anger, that's what love does right then. But love doesn't just extend patience when patience is needed. Love goes into all different areas. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but love rejoices in the truth, which means sometimes the most loving thing you can do is speak truth. And so sometimes we find this tension between patience and speaking truth. It's like, oh, I want to say something, but I'll just wait. I'll just wait. And sometimes it's appropriate to wait. And sometimes you have to speak. Love does what's appropriate in the moment. And it takes action in a very intentional, meaningful 
way. I want to go to one more passage to kind of encapsulate this idea of how the New Testament thinks about love. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says this, This is how we have come to know love. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? And the implication, the inference within that is that it doesn't. If you see need and you don't meet need, God's love does not reside in you. He goes on, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Love takes the right action at the right time, regardless of personal cost. Love takes the right action at the right time, regardless of personal cost. So he goes on, and the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that it's love that ultimately lasts forever. Like meaningful impact in our relationships, meaningful impact on this earth as the precursor of love. And, and any time love is, is removed from the equation, equation, eternal impact, lasting impact goes away. And so when the world asks the question, how do you see me? Our lives should answer back through the lens of love. So here's the formula. They act. We see. But we see through the lens of love. And then we act, having seen through the lens of love. And so when we act seeing through the lens of love, we ask the question, what does that person need right now? What does that person need right now? Does that person need me to exhibit patience? Does that person need me to speak truth into their life? Does that person need me to suffer with them? Does that person need me to bear the weight of their inabilities? What does that person need right now? And so what we don't see in Scripture is that this is optional. We do not see in the New Testament that we have this option to flip the switch of saying, I'm going to be a loving person today, I'm not going to be a loving person today. In this situation, I'm going to be loving, but in this situation, I'm not going to be loving. We constantly have to ask the question, am I doing what Christ would call me to? So two questions to challenge our hearts as we seek to live lives, uh, looking through the lens of love. Two questions. Who is it that you say you love, but you're not actually loving? Who is it that you say you love where your actions don't match the words? Second question. What conflict do you need to take a look at again, but this time through the lens of love? What conflict do you need to take a look at again, but this time through the lens of love? And then bonus question. Bonus question. Who is it in your life that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Who is it in your life that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? And what is the most loving action you could take on their behalf? We have an opportunity to see ourselves through the eyes of others. If we'll reflect, I think these types of questions allow us to see a little bit through other people's eyes. When we reflect on situations and circumstances, asking the question, have I acted and love, because the way the world is supposed to see us, the way the world is supposed to see us is as people who love God above all else and love people as if there's no way you could love God without loving people. I want to pray for us, and then in your small group time, you've got a listing of questions. You're going to have an opportunity to read a little bit deeper into 1 Corinthians. And then I really do encourage you to, to um, as you get to the end of questions, to look at some very practical ways that, that Christ may be calling you to live this out this week. 
I know for me personally, um, when I read through this list in 1 Corinthians 13, there are people that come to mind that right now I need to exhibit some of these specific actions that love produces. And so um, I, hope, I hope this is a beneficial time where you can see how love can actually impact your day-to-day relationships. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the fact that you love us. You took the first step of love in our relationship. You sent your son You met the need. You sacrificed at great personal cost, and we are the beneficiaries of that. Father, there is no one like you. There is no one above you, and there is no one more worthy to be served. Father, we love you. And as as we seek to live out what it means to follow you in our day-to-day life, I pray that you would continue to allow your spirit to convict our hearts for where we stray and to Keep faithfully encouraging us when we fall. Father, you love us without end. It is unrelenting. And it calls us back into your presence time after time. And so, Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy and the challenge you bring to our life to live more and more on mission for you. Father, ultimately, I pray that people would come to know your name because of the people in this room being willing to take the message of the gospel out. It's your name we pray. Amen.